Welcome, welcome, welcome to A Reason for Hope. My name is Adrian. I'm filling in for Dave Robson today. It is that season right now here in the Southwest. Uh, the pollen is flying. The dust is all around. Dustin and, and uh, the <laughs> snorfling abounds. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel for those who have heavy allergies. I've never really had struggled with that and uh, being uh, unable to breathe normally for weeks on end would be miserable. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, I've, I've had my ups and downs with this phenomena, but uh, you've had mostly the downs. But you're hearing in good voice today. Yeah, fortunately, found a way to treat it. Nice. Very good. Well, we're so glad to be with you today. Uh, this is a daily weekday Bible answer program where you can chime in with your questions about um, the Holy Bible, the Christian faith, uh, comparative religions. Uh, do we know that uh, have any have any good reasons to believe that God exists? Can we trust the words of the Bible as having been preserved throughout time or have any authority in our lives today in the modern age? Questions like that and many, many more. So if you have a question, a sincere question you'd like to ask, please join us. This is a live stream program, so we will take questions live as we go through the program and we live stream to multiple platforms. First of all, of course, Facebook and YouTube are the usual suspects. You can go to our Facebook page, <clears throat> which is facebook.com slash at CCF Tucson, and just chat, join, join the live stream and use the chat function, and you can post your questions there, and we'll handle them one at a time as we get them uh, live through the program. We also live stream to YouTube. You can uh, go to our YouTube <clears throat> channel and just look for a Reason for Hope Bible Q&A. And if you do join us on some of these social media platforms, we'd really appreciate if you'd subscribe hit that notification bell. We live stream all of our services, special events from here at our church in Tucson, Arizona, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. And uh, we live stream this program as well as all our services. <clears throat> and our YouTube handle is a reason for hope 546. Our senior pastor here in studio with us today is Pastor Scott Richards. And we'd encourage you to follow his Twitter feed. Uh, you can even tweet out a question you'd like to have tackled or an issue you'd like to have answered here on the program. But if for any reason, uh, just follow along. If you would love getting Bible updates, Bible prophecy updates, and uh, just an all-around uh, entertaining Twitter feed. Uh, I find it very entertaining, at least personally. <laughs> <laughs> and we don't even pay him to say that. So <laughs> Yeah, that was, that was free. That was yeah. free. <laughs> uh, you can uh, check us, as, uh, or you can follow Pastor Scott at ScottR4H. That's his Twitter handle. We are now going to start posting our Reason for Hope program on Rumble. So if you are a little bit rebellious and you want to rumble up the feathers, you can go to Rumble and watch us there. And, uh, of course, if you do, please follow along, and you can uh, check out our future posts. But I don't think we'll be live streaming there just yet. So if you want to watch live, you'll have to go to YouTube or Facebook or go straight to our website. Maybe you're one of those individuals who kind of wants to uh, avoid social media and would prefer to just watch the live stream somewhere else. So if you go to our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com, you can click on the Watch Live tab on our navigation on our website, and you can watch not only watch this program as well as our services, but you can comment, ask questions, make prayer requests uh, right from there. We also have an app that you can download from the Apple or Google Play Store. This app gives you access to a 
nifty little digital Bible. You can make notes. You can join chat groups, make prayer requests, uh, follow along future events that are coming up here at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, as well as um, go through archived messages. We are a church who teaches the Bible book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. So if you have a question about a passage of Scripture, chances are there is a sermon on that passage in our archive. So please check those out. And if you want to add our service stream to your Amazon Fire products and Roku, we have channels on both of those you can do so. And finally, if you'd look to ask, if you'd like to ask questions a little bit, uh, a little bit uh, anonymously and uh, not want to do it in public and on a social media platform, you can simply email your questions to us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's questionsforhope, all spelled out, no numbers, at gmail.com. With that being said, let's take a moment to pray. Let's do that. Would you like to pray for us? Okay. Okay. Dad, thank you that we have the chance to be here. We're going to invite you to be here as well. Let your word go forth. Let your heart be blessed and your people be ministered to. We're honored to be a part of the process, but we want to make this time meaningful. So take it away. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So what's going on? Well, uh, one of the things that we try to provide for you all here on the uh, program is an opportunity uh, to be able to stay on the cutting edge of uh, news events that uh, really do have some pretty uh, heavy-duty overtones. As far as our understanding of what it means to be living in the last days, the end times, uh, right on the cutting edge, I believe, of the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we've often told you, uh, the, the most important sign that we are in the ballpark is that Israel is back in the land again, in its historic homeland. Uh, this is nothing short of a miracle. The fact that Israel not only has returned to its, her homeland, but has survived uh, three different wars of genocide against uh, Israel since its founding, and has not only survived, but actually thrived under these sets of circumstances. Certainly, uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt, in my estimation, shows that uh, the hand of God is upon uh, the sons and daughters of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and uh, is doing an amazing work. Well, speaking of uh, amazing works, we want to make you aware of a development uh, that has happened in Israel this week that uh, I just found out about uh, earlier today because the normal news channels uh, that we look to to try to keep you up to date had absolutely nothing to say about this particular event. Won't hear about it on NBC, won't hear about it on ABC, CBS, uh, won't hear about it on Fox, MSNBC, CNN, whatever your cable news uh, connection might be. Won't hear about this. Uh, interestingly enough, didn't even hear about this story uh, on the Jerusalem Post website, uh, which, among other things, was um, offering headline stories about uh, Joe Biden dithering as to whether he is going to run again or not. Uh, so uh, fascinating uh, that this particular story kind of was scrubbed from major media. And, and I think it illustrates something that I've been hearing more and more often. If you really want to find out what's going on in the world, going to the large media sites uh, sometimes can leave you a little bit blindsided. So it's really important not just to check what's going on in major media. I'm not saying there's no value to that, although it's decreasing, I think, over time. But also have some trusted, well, how shall I say, minor media outlets 
uh, mid-major media outlets, for lack of a better term, that you can go to and focus in on uh, matters pertaining to biblical prophecy. Uh, one of the ones that uh, we recommend uh, that you uh, be, be involved with is uh, Calvary Prophecy, Terry Malone's a great site where it's, it's almost like a, a, a Christian version of the Drudge Report before the Drudge Report kind of fell apart. Uh, he uh, lists a number of different stories that you'll run into uh, on that website uh, that do have some uh, prophetic uh, implications on it and some interesting blogs and, and uh, video conversations about things pertaining to the last days and the end times from a decidedly pre-tribulational point of view, which is the point of view that we take here on this program. So we really love Terry's ministry there. Uh, you know, the other... Uh, uh, Christian-based uh, website that I think is really a, uh, a must-see. And this is where we were able to come up with what I think is uh, one of the more extraordinary stories that has happened in Israel in uh, the last six months, to say the least, uh, is uh, Joel Rosenberg's allisrael.com website. Uh, go there, check it out often. Uh, Joel is a good friend of ours. He's been a guest here on the program before, uh, graciously giving some time uh, to us to uh, answer biblical questions. Uh, New York Times best-selling author, and uh, you know, again, uh, old hand uh, in terms of uh, a, being a political advisor uh, to uh, a number of high-level individuals, including Benjamin Netanyahu himself. Uh, well, on Joel's uh, All Israel News site, the headline that grabbed my eye uh, not long before we went on the air here uh, was the, in all block letters, word unprecedented. Iran's crown prince meets Bet Benjamin Netanyahu, quotes the Bible, extols Cyrus the Great, and speculates about future Cyrus Accords between Iran and and Israel. You're saying, what in the world is going on here? Well, a little background as to uh, how Iran uh, became such a uh, thorn in the side of, uh, of not just Israel, the United States, but virtually peace in the Middle East. Uh, Iranian uh, former president, their late king, or Shah, if you will, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, uh, was deposed from power in the late 70s, uh, he was replaced by a character that you probably heard of before, the Ayatollah Khomeini. Uh, the Ayatollah Khomeini uh, basically seized power in a coup. Uh, uh, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi and his family barely escaped uh, with their lives to the United States. And one of the reasons that uh, the Ayatollah Khomeini was welcomed and uh, backed by so many people was uh, because they believed that the Ayatollah Khomeini might be the 12th Mahdi, the Imam Mahdi, who would uh, succeed in bringing in about a worldwide caliphate. Well, as uh, the Iranian people sadly discovered, he was no savior sent from on high, uh, an incredibly tyrannical and brutal individual, uh, a, an individual that ruled with an iron fist, uh, some Iranian friends of ours uh, thought that uh, when he came that uh, they would uh, receive uh, more freedom and uh, less uh, human rights abuses than had uh, been the case under uh, the uh, regime of the Shah. Well, it turned out to be exactly the opposite. Uh, anybody that was uh, associated in any way, shape, or form with the previous regime, including this family, he was a pilot in the Iranian Air Force, fought against the Iraqis, but because he was a pilot in the Iranian Air Force under the control of the Shah, he and his family had to flee for their lives as well. Well, uh, again, 
the uh, the Shah of Iran came to the United States. He had a, a large place uh, just north of Santa Barbara for years, uh, where his family was raised under very tight security, as you would probably imagine. Died of cancer, uh, but his son uh, Reza Pahlavi, Crown Prince of Iran, by the way, they factor their royalty, has over the years, uh, uh, you know, arisen as a leader of uh, the Iranian opposition. Uh, he has a uh, Facebook page with, uh, I should say Facebook, and a uh, Twitter site with over 1.2 million followers. So definitely people are interested in what he has to say. But uh, the fascinating thing that happened just this week is that, uh, again, Reza Pahlavi, the Iranian crown prince, arrived in Israel for a personal visit accompanied by his wife, Yasmin. When he arrived, he said this, Yasmin and I have arrived here in Israel. We are very happy to be here and are dedicated to working towards peaceful and prosperous, uh, peaceful and prosperous future that the people of our region preserved. From the children of Cyrus to the children of Israel, we will build this future together in friendship. Now notice uh, Reza Pahlavi mentions King Cyrus. Now, this is a reference to Cyrus the Great, an individual that is mentioned not only in Persian history, but also in the Bible as one of the most influential leaders in the history of the ancient Medo-Persian Empire. He was the one in Scripture who gave the people of Israel the opportunity to be able to return to the land. He gave them freedom to be able to stay or go. Uh, he was the one who worked with both Ezra and uh, Nehemiah to uh, uh, oversee the idea of resettling their homeland. He gave them permission and the money to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, he had some other very interesting things to say as far as some quotes were concerned. But when he arrived, he was given a, uh, boy, a, a tour and a welcome that was uh, probably in harmony with a head of state immediately meeting uh, with uh, uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his wife, Sarah. He was also invited to uh, visit Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum, on the night of Holocaust Remembrance Day. Uh, Joel Rosenberg described the event as uh, being loaded with uh, dignitaries from government, uh, from uh, politics, from uh, religious sources and, and all. But right before the event began, through a left-hand door, entered... Reza Pahlavi and his wife, who sat in the front row uh, for the events uh, that uh, took place at Yad Vashem, including the testimonies of a number of Holocaust survivors as to the horrors of the Nazi death, death camps and their harrowing escapes and their ability to survive, that sort of thing. So uh, again, afterwards, uh, at 12.18 local time today, uh, Pahlavi tweeted out photos of both he and his wife praying at the Western Wall. You may know it as the Wailing Wall. That's the name the Muslims give it. Uh, the uh, Jewish people prefer to call it the Western Wall. And so after he got done praying at the Western Wall, he tweeted this. So said Cyrus, king of Persia, quote, all the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord God of the heavens delivered to me, and he commanded me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judea. 
2,500 years ago, Cyrus the Great liberated the Jewish people from their captivity and helped them rebuild their temple in Jerusalem. It is with profound awe that I visit the western wall of the temple and pray for the day when the good people of Iran and Israel can renew their historic friendship. Wow. So here we see uh, what we would call a sea change going on in, uh, in terms of Israel welcoming a controversial individual like this and uh, feeding him at the highest levels of power, uh, allowing him to be a guest of honor at something like Holocaust Remembrance Day. Another interesting part of his tour was visiting the cities of Tel Aviv and Haifa. Now, the reason I point this out to you is if you were with us yesterday, we found that uh, the counterpart to, uh, say, uh, Israel, uh, the president of Iran, uh, said yesterday on Holocaust Remembrance Day, kind of bad timing, that Iran uh, will destroy both Haifa and Tel Aviv if there's the slightest provocation given by Israel. Well, very interesting that the son of the Shah was visiting both Haifa and Tel Aviv for a very interesting reason. One of the reasons he was in Haifa was to see the incredibly sophisticated an effective uh, water desalinization plant that Israel has built. Now, if you're following along with our prophecy updates here, one of the things that has led to great instability in Iran and uh, uprisals against uh, the uh, mad mullahs in Tehran has been the tremendous droughts that uh, Iran has been experiencing. Also, uh, the mismanagement of resources, including water delivery, by the regime. It seems like they're more interested in trying to fund terrorism and plot the end of the world than actually providing goods and services for their people. But uh, very interesting that uh, uh, Riza Pahlavi visited that particular site. So, you know, the, uh, the, the fascinating thing about all of this is here you see uh, an individual coming on the scene, a uh, potential successor to the Shah of Iran, being given this kind of hero's welcome, if you will, in Jerusalem. Very interesting as well that the major media really didn't even give an observation about all of this. I could see somebody saying, well, you know, he's just this individual is out of power and, you know, everybody's got a, uh, you know, a uh, gripe and so on. You know, he's not really that significant an individual. They aren't really sure that he is the leader of the Iranian opposition. Although I would say having 1.2 million followers on Twitter tells me somebody's listening to what he has to say. But uh, the, the interesting thing uh, is this. Uh, in Joel Rosenberg's article, he said, chatting with several Israelis and Jewish Americans in the crowd, I heard some real cynicism about whether Iran really can be liberated one day, and even whether Pahlavi has any real chance of uniting the vast Iran opposition around himself and emerging one day as the actual leader of a free and democratic Iran. Joel says, caution is warranted, perhaps skepticism as well, but certainly, uh, both certainly seem like long shots at the moment. He said, but I see things differently. I have no doubt that one day the wicked Iranian regime currently enslaving the Iranian people will be both judged by God and removed by power. Several Bible prophecies, such as Ezekiel 38 and 39 and Jeremiah 49, make this a certainty, though the scriptures are not clear as to when this will happen. We'll talk about that in just a second. What's more, I actually think it's possible that the God of the Bible may in fact be inclined to raise up Pahlavi to a position of great power, especially if Pahlavi continues to tell and herald the life of Cyrus the Great, model his life after Cyrus, and look to the biblical record for guidance. 
And so uh, Joel exhorts us that uh, if this is going to happen, it's going to require supernatural help, uh, the help that only the God of the Bible can provide. That means the crown prince would do well to start building an alliance with evangelical Christians, mobilizing millions of pro-Israel evangelicals to pray unceasingly for Iran's liberation and for God to use him to make a historic peace and normalization treaty with the state of Israel and the Jewish people. Uh, you know, yesterday, uh, you know, we, uh, we had a question as to why we uh, constantly say that we are to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Why should we pray for the peace of Jerusalem and not pray, say, for the peace of New York? Uh, why should we? Uh, well, first of all, because the Bible tells us to do that. And, and if, we don't want to pray for lost causes. Yeah, and if uh, God tells us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, we need to pray for the peace of Jerusalem for a really important reason. This gets down to the nub of that, that question. Uh, there is going to be no peace in Jerusalem until the Prince of Peace returns to Jerusalem. So every time we are praying for the peace of Jerusalem as believers in Christ, uh, we are praying uh, the way Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come. That's really what we're praying for because that's where Jesus is going to set up his kingdom and rule and reign. So, uh, you know, again, uh, as far as this being a big deal or not, uh, you know, Joel Rosenberg said that uh, the ir Iranian regime uh, is driven by apocalyptic Islam. The reason why this is such a big deal is that there are more and more Iranians, Persians, I should probably more accurately and politely put it, who have had it pretty much up to here with this regime uh, and uh, spending the vast amount of resources they have to say, for instance, uh, supply the Russians with drones to use against uh, the Ukraine or to uh, underwrite uh, terrorist attacks or put 250,000 missiles within shooting range of Israel in the midst of all of this. They've pretty much had it up to here. And, uh, you know, there have been a number of, uh, of, of potential match strike events that have happened. Uh, the murder of an Iranian woman for failing to wear her hijab properly in Iran uh, by uh, the government while she was in an Iranian jail. Uh, this has created uh, demonstrations across the country. Uh, the, uh, the kind of monomania that the uh, leaders in Iran now have about bringing in uh, the 12th Imam, their so-called Islamic savior, by bringing the world to a global uh, conflict. You know, I Iran, as it is currently constituted, does not want peace, does not want uh, peace in this world. They want to see a global conflict so their 12th Imam can come in and rule the world with an iron fist and oppose Islam uh, globally. But what Joel says here, I think, is really significant. He says, there's another vision of Iran's future, a brighter, more hopeful vision, one of Iran becoming a true democracy, creating a nation characterized not by poverty and radicalism and hatred of Jews and Christians, but by economic opportunity, prosperity, religious freedom, and even peace with Israel and the United States. It is a vision held by millions of Persians who currently live in exile, that is, who live outside the Islamic Republic of Iran, in the United States or Europe or elsewhere, and cannot go back to their homeland or they would be immediately arrested, imprisoned, tortured, and even executed. He says, this is a vision that has a leader. His name is Reza Pahlavi. Uh, you know, this, this really hits home for, say, Sean and myself, because some dear friends of ours, and then we'll mention their names on the air, uh, are uh, exiles from Iran. 
and uh, in talking to one of them, sharing uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ, I'm very open uh, to the claims of Christ. But when I said, you know, would you consider becoming a Christian? Uh, she said to me, no, I, I can't do that. Uh, and I said, well, why not? She said, because I want to return to my homeland someday. And if I became a Christian, they would arrest me and kill me at the border. Wow. Yeah. So uh, this is, this is the, the, the passion that uh, these, these wonderful people, and you've never met more hospitable, more wonderful people than the Persian people. Uh, you know, just uh, they, they will they will bend over back and do anything for you. Their, their hospitality is is legendary. Mm -hmm. And uh, just it's heartbreaking to, to see them in this set of circumstances. So, uh, you know, the, a couple things that we would say about this is the possibility of a democratic, open, free Iran in the cards. Uh, we don't know. We, we really don't. I tend to be I'll put my cards on the table on this, I tend to be skeptical about it for a couple of reasons. First of all, we're told in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39 that uh, when the last day's invasion of Israel takes place, the Gog and Magog invasion, uh, the Persians are going to be right at the side of the Russians who are going to be spearheading this event. Uh, we're also told in Jeremiah chapter 49, a prophecy about Elam, which is part of modern Persia, it says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will break the bow of Elam, the foremost of their might. Against Elam I will bring the four winds from the four quarters of heaven and scatter them toward all the winds. There shall be no nations where the outcasts of Elam will not go. For I will cause Elam to be dismayed before their enemies and before those who seek their life. I will bring disaster upon them. My fierce anger, says the Lord, and I will send the sword after them until I have consumed them. I will set my throne in Elam and will destroy from there the king, uh, the, the, king, the king and the princes. But it shall come to pass in the latter days that I will bring back the captives of Elam, says the Lord. So here we see a prophecy that says that uh, God is definitely going to judge Iran, the, the, the Persian nation, in a supernatural way. Uh, the leadership itself is going to want that. I think it's very interesting that the bow of Elam, the foremost of their might, now, remember what their passionate pursuit is, a nuclear weapon. Accordingly, to sources 90% of the way uh, to having the enriched uranium necessary to build a nuclear weapon, just sort of having the, uh, the wherewithal to be able to finish up the technical parts of all this. God says he's going to deal with that. He's also going to deal with the leadership. But there's a word of hope here. It shall come to pass in the last days that we'll bring back the captives of Elam. Well, this is a word of hope to our friends who are uh, Persian expatriates, uh, these individuals scattered across the world, people like Reza Pahlavi and others. Uh, could this be a prophecy of the restoration that is going to happen for these people in the last days and the end times? Now, personally, I don't think we're going to see a change in the regime until uh, the uh, wiping out of this coalition of nations in the Gog and Magog invasion. I believe that's going to happen during the tribulation period for a couple of important reasons. Israel is going to be invaded when their guard is completely down. They're going to be defenseless. Uh, they're, they're going to be at peace, uh, supposedly. The only pseudo semi-peace they're going to experience is going to be the peace that the Antichrist is going to bring with his false uh, world uh, peace-producing treaty that he's going to bring in at the beginning of the tribulation period. 
this is going to be broken by this invasion. And the reason I say that it's going to be broken by this invasion, I believe at the halfway point, is uh, because following this, we are told that Israel is going to know that the Lord's God. They're never going to worship idols or anything else ever again. The beginning of the tribulation period, we are told in passages like Isaiah 28, uh, that uh, there is uh, going to be a covenant of, with death that Israel is going to make uh, and uh, to seek uh, safety and security with that, and that that covenant of, of death is going to be abrogated by God. So, you know, I do believe that we are going to see Iran continue on its current course. I do believe there is hope, however, uh, for the Iranian people. God is not going to forget them or forsake them. I believe their restoration is going to happen at the, the last part of the tribulation period. But, again, we're offering speculation here. We can't be 100% certain, as Joel Rosenberg said. It's not a hill that we would die on. We feel like there's really good reasons to believe that the Iranians are going to continue on their course of uh, wanting to see Israel exterminated because of these passages. But um, who knows? And I think uh, the important thing for us to be doing as we see how, how all these events are going to play out is not just be praying for the peace of Jerusalem as that question was answered. Be <clears throat> praying for the peace of Tehran. Be praying for the, the uh, I mean, amazing amount of Persian people in Iran who are giving their lives to Christ as a result of media outreaches, as a result, uh, Joel Rosenberg uh, spoke of an interview he did uh, with a woman who was arrested uh, after she uh, became a believer, after seeing a vision of Jesus and uh, tossed in the, the horrible Evan prison, one of the worst prisons in the entire world. She started a Bible study there. They'd have worship services on Sunday morning in the middle of the Evan prison. And uh, finally, uh, she managed to get out and, and flee the country. Joel Rosenberg uh, interviewed her. And, you know, the, the thing that we hear over and over again is that the Persian people are incredibly hungry for a real relationship with God. They see what the mad mullahs are providing to them. They see the abuse that Islam is bringing upon them. And uh, although there's a lot of cultural hurdles to overcome, why is Jesus appearing to people in visions? Well, if you've been raised with Islam, you're going to probably need some pretty extraordinary measures to reconsider your position. So, you know, we're seeing these things. We're seeing, uh, you know, a, an amazing amount of people in Persia giving their lives to Christ. Let's continue to pray for that. Let, let's pray that, uh, you know, again, a leader like uh, Reza Pahlavi who has no qualms about quoting the book of Ezra, chapter 1 and verse 2, on a trip to Israel and praying at the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall, mm. um, you know, that, uh, that God is going to honor that. And, uh, you know, the other thing that I would just add again is if you want to know what's really going on in this world, uh, the old Russian proverb regarding the lamestream, I mean mainstream media, <laughs> is this, trust but verify. A lot of it's propaganda. A lot of it is selective. A lot of it is... Uh, uh, stuff that is left out by omission. So bookmark uh, allisrael.com. Yeah. I don't think you'll regret that. Uh, go to calvaryprophecy.com on a regular basis. Uh, check out the Jerusalem Post, although it tends to be kind of left-leaning and so on. Uh, you get an idea of what the politics are going on in Israel at that particular time. And, and I think you'll be blessed by that. So uh, kind of a big sort of last minute, but a big prophecy update. And I got to tell yeah. you, when I saw that uh, headline, it was about... Uh, 15 minutes before airtime, and I had no idea any of this was going on. Hmm. 
by my usual source. Well, and thanks, Andy, for that question from yesterday. Should we pray for the peace of Jerusalem? The answer is a big resounding yes. And while you're praying for the peace of Jerusalem, pray for the rest of the world as well. Exactly. So especially when, when God is moving in a specific area, we are privy to that. We should continue to pray for God to move in those areas. Now, Adrian, you've been in that neck of the woods, and you know, you've had the opportunity to do your outreach uh, in some pretty intense Islamic settings like Turkey and other areas like this. Uh, are the Muslim people in that neck of the woods really open to the gospel, or is this kind of evangelical propaganda? They are, especially when you hear from other missionaries who say things like this. I've been here for 25 years, and I'm seeing more people come to Christ this year than I have in all 25 years. Wow. When you hear stories like that, where, yes, when I first moved to Turkey, we had <clears throat> a record high 50 Christians in the entire country. Turkey was considered the most unreached country in the world, still is. And uh, when I started touring, they said, oh, yeah, we have 5,000 Christians. And now they're saying there could be as many as 50,000 Christians. Wow. So <clears throat> whenever you're doing something right, and we saw what happened with the prime minister of Turkey kind of faking a coup and, <laughs> yeah. and shutting down the country and kicking pastors and missionaries out, things like that. Um, the enemy is obviously fighting back in whatever ways he does. Yeah. But, uh, clearly, <clears throat> God is uh, really moving in the Islamic world. Yeah, yeah. Well, again, let's uh, continue to keep that in prayer. Mm. And let's dive into our questions. Yes. Uh, um, <clears throat> Talon, yesterday we didn't get to this question, but uh, how do I serve God in a job I feel is meaningless? People are important to me, but I just don't have the energy to socialize every day. So with a job that's meaningless, it seems like uh, Talon's implying here that the whole day feels meaningless. So how do we really serve God in a situation where we feel like what we're doing for our vocation, our livelihood, doesn't have any connection to spiritual things? Well, uh, you know, I guess... Maybe the immediate answer is, is there anything in our life that doesn't have a connection to spiritual things? It can if we approach it with the wrong attitude. Well, but what, what's the right attitude? right attitude is, whatever you do in word or deed, do heartily as unto the Lord. Obviously, when Jesus... And that's a scripture, isn't it? I think so. Colossians chapter 3 and uh, verse... Uh, uh, 21. You know, I didn't cite it. But the point being made is this. Yeah. When we're talking about, you know, oh, well, if I want a spiritual job, I should become a pastor or a missionary or an evangelist. Those are the things that I can do to serve the Lord, because that's also what the Lord does. But we forget that Jesus also spent the majority of his earthly ministry as a carpenter and as a faithful son and basically overseer to its family, depending on what traditions you acknowledge about if Joseph died young or something. But the point being made is this, when you have the opportunity to go to a metal shop and you, quoting Philippians, do all things without grumbling or complaining, that's <laughs> wow. a ministry. Yeah. When you go to, you know, those little um, Mr. Incredible memes where you're just like typing at the insurance company and <laughs> feel like you have to turn everyone away because your boss with the big head is mean and stuff, you have the opportunity to model Christ however and wherever you are, in whatever you're doing, whether it's in pursuits of art, whether it's in the mundane activities of life, whether it's as a parent, you have the opportunity to model Jesus in those situations. So if you approach it, noting the attitude, with saying, this isn't godly, then it won't be. If you can say, how can I make this godly? I don't think uh, including that in a prayer is going to be left unanswered. 
Yeah. And, uh, you know, we have to realize there's no accidents, uh, Talon. Uh, you're in that seemingly meaningless job uh, for a reason. Uh, you know, one of the greatest uh, definitions of boredom I have ever heard is uh, boredom is the emotion of a purposeless life. Uh, in, in other words, if we don't feel like what we're doing has meaning or purpose, we're going to be bored and we're going to seek things to distract us uh, from our sense of boredom. You know, that, that sense of being bored, I think, is indicative of the fact that we are made in the image and likeness of a purposeful God. If you take away purpose and meaning from someone, boy, it, it can be crushing for people. So, you know, I think as, as you said, Sean, the important thing is this. It's not what we do that matters. It's who we're doing it for. And, you know, if you wake up in the morning, Talon, you go, well, you know, my job isn't any great shakes. It's not a great thrill. But, Lord, this is where I am right now. And I ask that you go with me. I ask that you fill me with the Holy Spirit. I, I ask that you would uh, give to me uh, the opportunity uh, to be able to reflect your goodness and your glory in the midst of all of this. And, uh, and uh, I think if you do that uh, and, and you realize that you walk hand in hand with Jesus into wherever you are and look with anticipation for the opportunities for the Lord to either cause you to grow in character, maybe it's patience having its perfect work, who knows. Uh, but, but remember, it's preparing you for something. You know, when I saw your question, I immediately thought of King David. Uh, for the majority of his growing up years, he was a shepherd. Well, uh, the, the reason that he was the last son to be brought in when Samuel was looking for a king of, of uh, Israel uh, was because being a shepherd was the grunt work. It was the job nobody wanted to do. You know, talk about uh, long stretches of boredom punctuated by adrenaline rushes when a lion or a bear would come by. But, uh, you know, it, it wasn't exactly what you would call a job that would lead you to status. Um, shepherds were considered uh, not in the same uh, high esteem we would tend to place them from the Christmas cards in that day and age. It, it wasn't uh, something that would lead to uh, great wealth or position. It was something you just did, did because you had to do it. Uh, and yet, because David was faithful there and he learned the lessons there and cultivated his relationship with God there, who knows how many psalms David wrote while he had nothing else to do but watch the sheep. And, and so, you know, when you find yourself in a situation like this, I always remember the famous words of uh, Pastor Chuck Smith. He said, where we were yesterday is preparation for where we are today. And where we are today is preparation for where God will have us tomorrow. So um, keep that focused. I think you're going to be just fine. Great. Thank you, Pastor Scott. <clears throat> Speaking of uh, Samuel, hmm. um, we got a question today uh, about the Witch of Endor. Ah. And the question is, um, uh, let's see here. If it was a demon or if it was actually Samuel, and then, of course, clarification about the Hebrew place of the dead. Uh, if that was a demon, then if it the spirit was saying they'll be with me obviously jonathan was an unrighteous man so that doesn't make sense yeah. but also clarifying uh, the issue of the uh, whole situation obviously did god allow this to actually yeah. be samuel or not wait uh, Jan janet i think uh, did god allow the prophet samuel to summon the witch of edward which 
which is actually the opposite of what I think. What yeah, the witch of Endor summoned yeah, Samuel God. and Saul was the yeah. guy who sought out the witch of Endor, <clears throat> as I recall the account. Yeah. yeah. But, and did God allow the witch of Endor to actually summon the prophet, or was it something that, uh, was it a, a demon? Yeah, and obviously, um, just full clarification and honesty here, I've had my mind changed on this topic. I thought at first it was a demon because of working rules and assumptions that we make about the nature of the afterlife. This is not a position I hold anymore, but those who would believe that it is a demon would make the point of emphasis that it is given to man once to die, and then comes the judgment that if a man goes to the place of the dead, that that is not a rule, so that this would be a kind of Second Kings 11 scenario where God would allow a lying spirit to basically confirm Saul in his self-deception, and he took the form of Samuel to deliver this prophecy, uh, whether it was a, a spirit or a demon, an adversary literally, or just a messenger. That was the position I held. I no longer hold that position because arguing there are no exceptions is basically running contrary to why this passage was recorded as the death of Saul, that if it was an act of judgment against Saul in seeking out the witches and mediums, which by the way was one of the one things Saul got right up until this point, he expelled yeah. those con artists from Israel and now he's seeking them out, shows where he was at spiritually. But the point of emphasis in this passage I think that would make it very difficult, at least it was too difficult for me to hold my old position, and this not being Samuel is first off I'd need to have a another example of an adversarial spirit, or even a, a friendly spirit, a creature, an angel, that would appear as someone else and speak in the first person as if they were them. We don't have that. Obviously, demons trade in false doctrine, so putting on the part, so to speak, would be suitable, but this spirit, apparently, also delivers a true message from God, an act of judgment from God, that you and your sons will be with me. Now, the point of emphasis that can kind of be reconciled with the demon position is that being with me is not referring to hell. The demons aren't in hell either. There are some demons that are centralized and uh, isolated in what we call the abyss, but that's not capital H hell yet. We know that hell was created for the devil and his angels in Matthew 25, but we need to note and be careful about that idea. Hell isn't like this netherverse, like a video game series where you got God in heaven, the devil in hell, and they're kind of running this campaign for spiritual warfare. Now, the devil's accusing us before the Father day and night, Revelation 12 says, and we can verify that with actual examples in Zechariah chapter 4, I believe. So the point being made is this. When we look at this passage and note the Witch of Endor, first and foremost, wasn't expecting this to work. And Adrian, you uh, co-authored a book that draws special attention to that, where the usual act of mediums and spiritists are literally con artists. That's why God wanted them driven out of Israel. They didn't actually conjure spirits. They tricked people through what we call cold and hot readings. If you'd like a further clarification on what that is, feel free to ask. But the point in this passage is she freaks out. She wasn't expecting this entity. She literally calls it a god, but that isn't doctrine. That was her perspective, and says that it was like a man. He's wearing a shawl, but it was a man. And, he, and Saul's like, oh, it's Samuel. And Samuel says, why have you disturbed my slumber? I was put in this place awaiting the Messiah, and we'll talk about that perhaps in another question. But noting this place of the dead, Sheol, the grave, uh, Hades, whatever you want to call it, it's 
referencing where those were either waiting for the Messiah or where people are still today waiting for judgment. We note Jesus himself identifies this in the Gospel of Luke in what we call cautiously the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, but again, cautiously, because it is the only quote-unquote parable that uses proper names. I think we were being given an insight into what's been going on in the afterlife before the resurrection. That being said, because of this woman's reaction, because of the behavior of Samuel, and because of a lack of further scriptural evidence supporting the idea that this is, you know, just a ruse that was put on by a demonic entity, and that this entity, whatever it was, communicates true judgment against Saul from God. I think it was Samuel. I think Samuel was allowed in this situation as the exception, not the rule, to pronounce judgment on Saul. Why was he so special? Well, the first king of Israel, I think, gets you some perks, but the or I guess special attention in this case. It wasn't a perk to be told you and your kids are going to die tomorrow, but be that as it may. The whole point of the situation, and you noticed part of it, Jeanette, it's all centered around not just how Samuel's presented, how he's identified, and how the scripture continues in the account, by the way, that was written by Nathan the prophet, identifying him properly. There are other passages where demons do show up, but they're identified as demons by the authors, even though they're treated by the audience as if they were the people they were masquerading as. That's the issue. So, again, just to recap, I don't think that it was a demon. I think it was actually Samuel. God can produce exceptions without breaking the rule. If this is a special case and due for judgment, that's the whole point as to why it's exceptional. Because the witch of Endor did not intend to actually raise up a spirit but was horrified when her little seance ceremony actually worked, it was in judgment against Saul, not a confirmation of the seance practice as legitimate. And then, of course, when we're talking about this whole situation, it's like asking, well, in the book of Judges it says this, so why don't you Christians do that? This was a bad situation. <laughs> Honest history isn't a, condom or a commendation of its practice. Yeah, uh, the only thing I'd add is, uh, last night in our study in the book of Ezekiel, it talked. Of, uh, there was a really interesting thing that God said in Ezekiel 14 that if people sought out uh, false prophets and false sources of spiritual input, God will give you over to that. In other words, if you knowingly reject the truth and pursue these alternative avenues, uh, don't expect uh, the, the Lord uh, to shut the mouth of those people. Uh, you're going to end up believing what you want to believe, even though God has given you that heads up uh, in advance. And, and so, you know, when Saul went to uh, visit this medium, uh, he had no one to blame but himself. He knew full well what the Word of God had to say. But he even Im Im uh, imposed a uh, policy to remove mediums and, uh, and spiritists from the land. So, uh, you know, I think it's a fascinating insight into all of that. Uh, and another interesting point that might help you the next time, as you mentioned, uh, the individuals from Atheist R Us say, well, you know, the Bible says go see uh, fortune tellers. It's right there, you know. Well, the Bible reports what people did. It doesn't uh, commend uh, what they were doing or why they did it. It just tells us with an unblinking eye how sometimes God's people got it right. Most of the time they got it wrong, and that's where grace comes in. So, so there you go. Awesome. Thank you for that question. <clears throat> uh, Kimberly wants to know Matthew 27, 51 through 53. Mm -hmm. 
What's going on? What's there? going on here? In What's the, case, the deal with that? In the case of <laughs> We're starting to sound like uh, like uh, stand-up comics. Yeah. In the case in the case of a widow, how would they react if they knew the family member has married someone else while they were in the grave? How long were these people in the grave? Thanks, uh, Sean. Your thoughts. Uh, asked all our thoughts on that. Thank you, Kimberly. For the okay, question. I've been singled out. Um, the passage is the that's basically yeah the uh, <laughs> event that was taking place in the gospel according to Matthew and all the other synoptic gospels, being Mark and Luke, as well as the Gospel of John. They don't mention this. So obviously, when a gospel account focuses on something specific it, that wasn't mentioned by the others, that probably means that it was geared towards or drawing attention to what the gospel account's intended audience would take note of. Now, again, just to summarize, the Gospel of Mark was speaking as a biography firsthand from the Apostle Peter and speaking in a just-the-facts-ma'am sort of manner. Right. Uh, what's also interesting is that it was kind of from a Jewish perspective, because, and I'm still reading up on this, but if you read the Gospel of Mark, the flow of the accounts that Peter retells, it has a very interesting structure similar to the Exodus. So take for that what you will. I'm still verifying it, but there might be an intent in that in showing Jesus as this new Exodus, as this uh, fulfilled servant, if you will. The Gospel according to Luke was geared towards a Gentile audience. He makes no qualms about referencing the genealogy of a woman, which wouldn't be relevant to a uh, non or a, a Jewish audience, but non-Jews would be interested in that since Mary was the one directly involved in his physical birth. There was also uh, interesting attention to the sort of things that doctors would have emphasized, and according to historians, um, Sir, uh, is it William Ramsey? Uh, he examined the gospel according to Luke and said yeah. that it was Sir William Ramsey, yeah, a, a historical account of the first rank. He knew just what to do and what to look up and what to reference that other historians would be able to verify these accounts through. So it was a historical bent. John was a point of emphasis on theology, noting the sort of things Jesus did that only God could do. Matthew, going to the point of the question, was uh, basically intending to prove that Jesus was the Messiah with a Jewish audience in mind. If you want to parallel it with a New Testament book, it would be like the Hebrews. This was written to an audience that knew the Old Testament, and that's why it starts out, the very first verse of the New Testament is, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Abraham, the son of David. Why are those two names significant? Well, people who know Genesis 12 and people who know 2 Samuel 11 understand those are the bare minimum <laughs> requirements of what it means to be the Messiah before going into his family history, also something Jews would be interested in, because he'd have to be a descendant from Judah, he'd have to be a descendant from David, he'd have to be a descendant of the kings of Israel, and also specifically Zerubbabel, in order to have that Davidic line redeemed. On it goes. But when we're told about this resurrection, it's essentially doubling down on the fallout of Jesus's resurrection, or his uh, crucifixion rather, being followed by the raising of the dead. Why? Because the prophet Isaiah, prophet Joel, and many, many other Old Testament sources repeatedly emphasize these are the things to look for in noting that God is acting. These are the things to look for in noting the Messiah is here. So when someone physically dies, literally being hung on a tree, that was considered scandalous. In fact, the uh, Talmud Sanhedrin draws special attention to that to show that God cursed him, because Deuteronomy itself says, right, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. That's the curse of God. Yet 
Paul the Apostle turns this on his head in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5, and noting actually proves our point, so thank you. But the point being made is this, when people were being physically raised from the dead as the fallout of Jesus' resurrection, there was a Jewish mind to read this and understand right prophecies being fulfilled. This was intended by God, because not only did people rise from their graves and appeared to many in the city, but what happened in the past is directly before that. It was the tearing of the veil in the temple, also significant to a Jewish audience, because that was what separated the holy of holies from the holy place. The presence of God was veiled from mankind's eyes until this moment. And people, of course, uh, didn't get the hint, tried to sew it back up, and they, yeah, you get the idea. But the other perspective that's taken on this is that I, I tend to hold the first view just because one person reports something and another people draw attention to other things doesn't mean it's false. But when we're talking about other perspectives, this is worth something. You can take it for what it is worth. Um, it's speaking of basically the long-term product of Jesus' death, resulting in the saints being raised from the dead and appearing to many, meaning these witnesses, could testify to the fact that Jesus' death brought life to so many. That was the idea of, for example, Dorcas in the, in the uh, Acts right. of the Apostles, the saints that were raised to life as a result of uh, other incidents and ongoings. And then, of course, what's most important is the Messiah himself being the first fruit of the resurrection that many would follow after this, culminating in Revelation chapter 20. I don't necessarily hold to that view, but I'll at least have it in my hand to note to uh, that's a probable approach, but because it specifies Jerusalem, I hold more of the first view that this actually happened. Um, not biblical, of course, but in the movie Ben-Hur, there was that idea of mass healings breaking out as a result of when Jesus died, and right. uh, Ben-Hur says, when he died, I felt him take the sword from my hand. There is validity to that, because there were miracles that were accompanied yeah, not ben just Hur's throughout. Yeah, uh, mom and, and his sister were healed of leprosy. Yeah, uh, that's with these sort of things in mind, that miracles were just breaking out. But the big and most important miracle of Jesus' death was, or miracles rather, the sun going dark, directly referencing Joel, the earthquake that accompanied the wrath of God being poured out, and then, of course, the uh, when he said it is finished, the tearing of the veil of the temple. The resurrection to a Jewish mind of saints just throughout the city was the same mindset people had when the prophet Elisha had his physical body thrown into a grave, and it raised someone to life. So in the death of the greater Elijah, which you know many of Jesus' miracles were like a super form of Elijah, it was with this Jewish mindset. They were noting these details and saying, that sounds familiar, which was the point. Yeah. yeah. I had a clarification, though, on part of it there, where it says <clears throat> the, uh, the event is recorded after his death when he gave up his spirit, but in the text it actually says coming out of the graves after his resurrection. So are they yeah, that's, saying some, that this is something that happened both and? That yeah. some bodies came up here, and then more bodies came out when he was resurrected? Yeah, that's the idea, is this would be a description of the long-term effects mm -hmm. of the resurrection from here till Revelation 20, the first resurrection. Mm -hmm. But when it, because it specifies the city of Jerusalem, it can be a both and. I gotcha. think there's room for that. I was always curious about that, what your take on that was. Thank yeah. you. Just and an opinion. Maybe but. sometime we can... <laughs> tackle the controversy that Mike Lacona stirred up when he mentioned that this may have been just an apocalyptic 
Just one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just one. Not one, a fan one of, of Michael Kona, by the way. <laughs> That's why I mentioned him because I know that you'd have fun kind of tearing that apart. But uh. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll need to do a bit of reading first. But uh, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you. And, and the only thing I'll say about the whole, uh, what, what was this just a stapled in, uh, you know, uh, apoc- uh, apocryphal uh, vignette? Uh, no, there, there's no example in any of the text texts we have that it was stapled in, or you know, we don't have uh, accounts in Matthew where th- that is lacking. It is 100 percent in there. Mm-hmm. I, I guess when someone says, well, you know, this idea about the dead people coming to life and, you know, it's being seen by people in Jerusalem, well, you know, go back to John chapter 11. There we have an example of a dead guy coming to life and being seen mm-hmm. by many people mm-hmm. as a result of Jesus saying, I am the resurrection and the life. It would only stand a reason if that resurrection and life were provided at the cross and that the resurrection that was to come was to validate the fact that uh, eternal life was was now available because of what God had done, mm. it would only uh, stand a reason that you would have some physical signs that people could look to and say, wow, that must be true, just like you mentioned with the tearing of the veil and so on. You know, if yeah. you've, you've got a problem with the, the supernatural uh, tearing of the veil, you don't have a problem with that, but you have a problem with people being supernaturally raised from the dead, seems to me like you've got a lot of fundamental problems with the ministry of Jesus in general. And as soon as the author inserts that line, also after his resurrection, it contextualizes in history right away. Right. So, you know, again, some people might want to duck and cover because they're worried their atheist Mm -hmm. friends won't like them anymore, but no need to do that. Thanks for your questions, and thank you for joining us today. If you we didn't get your question, we'll get back to it tomorrow, but uh, we'll be here again tomorrow, same place, same time. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.